Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out, therefore virgins love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold, studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands, behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, 
for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. On my bed by night, I sought him who my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him who my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him who my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of merchants? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon, he made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple, its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. In one sense, we could say that over the next three weeks, our subject is sex. I've considered giving the title to the series Sex in the City, we're going to talk about good sex, bad sex, God and sex. But to say that sex is our subject is perhaps not quite right. We are going to talk a lot about sex. The presenting issue is sex. We're going to find that the issue of sex raises for us a whole host of additional and far more significant matters. In particular, sex, as it always does in the Bible, will ask us questions about what place God has in our lives how we relate to God, where we think we shall find true intimacy, and how genuine fulfillment might be discovered. How we relate to God profoundly impacts our understanding enjoyment of sex. In fact, I hope to persuade you that only those who are in right relationship with God truly understand sex. Our study is the remarkable poem known as the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon and straight away we note that the Song of Songs is a poem and it's a poem that is to be sung. And as one speaker on the Song of Songs put it, you know, we're not that used to reading poetry. When was the last time you read a poem to yourself for pleasure? So much of the Bible is historical narrative, doctrinal epistle, letter. And poetry just isn't the same. Symbolism, imagery, creating a sense of something but not necessarily intending a literal meaning. Suggestive, evocative. 
This poem is profoundly subversive. In fact, I would want to suggest, and hope we might agree by the end of this, that it is the most subversive piece of literature in the Old Testament. It's going to use the most powerful of human emotions, sex and love, to get right under our skin and to ask us key questions about the most important of human relationships, our relationship with God. You will have noticed there are a number of characters in the poem. There is Solomon, it's the Song of Solomon. The king is mentioned twice in chapter one. His name appears in the title in chapter three and then in, again in the closing stanzas or verses of the whole poem in chapter eight. But is it actually Solomon? Probably. But is Solomon used, being used as the ideal or the counter-ideal? I think the latter. You don't want to be like Solomon. Then there's the woman, she. We don't know whether she actually exists or whether she's a literary figure created to raise some of the big challenging issues we're going to face. Is she describing her lifetime life experience? Or is the whole piece invented to get under our skin? It doesn't really matter. Is she a bride at a wedding? Is she every bride at a wedding? Is she captive in Solomon's harem and escapes by the skin of her teeth? I think so. Certainly she's a country girl. Chapter 1, verse 5. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. She left a factor 15 at home. She certainly spends a lot of time in the country, Verse 16 of chapter 1, our couch is green, the beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. Sex in the forest. My reading is that she's a girl who for some reason found herself caught up in Solomon's harem. Maybe she dreamt of it, hoped for it, but she escaped. And then there's her lover. Now, at first reading, you might think that her lover is the King Solomon, but I'm not sure that is sustainable, and we'll see that in chapter 8, there's a third figure, he, who is not Solomon, and she delights in him, her lover, and looks down on Solomon and his harem. Then there are additional characters, her brothers, rather bossy and overprotective. That's brothers. Watchmen, sinister and threatening. The daughters of Jerusalem, perhaps potential members of the harem who rather kind of adore Solomon from afar and haven't realized what they're looking at. And then friends. Now the poem contains at least two night scenes, probably dreams, more like nightmares. The poem contains erotic sexual description. Three times he describes her body, praising every aspect of her naked appearance. Twice he works his way down her body, once up. And the poem contains moral instruction. I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem, do not awaken love until it so desires. And then there are profoundly sinister undertones. 
there is bad sex as well as good sex. The, is, the, the, tong, the song is titled The Song of Songs. That's interesting. It comes in a body of literature known as The Writings. And the writings contain Job that we looked at over the last few weeks, the Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, as well as the Psalms, the Minor Prophets. The writings contain numerous songs, but by calling it the Song of Songs, it's almost as if the writer is saying, look, there are a lot of songs in the Bible, the Psalms and all sorts of other songs, but if you're going to sing any song, this is the song to sing. We're going to see that that is quite subversive. We've got three Sundays. I want to encourage you as strongly as I can to listen to all three. I want to ask you to read this song, this poem. You could even try singing it. It was very adventuresome. I've read it around 30 times since March and dozens more over the years. And it will take you around 21 minutes and 40 seconds to read if you read it slowly. In fact, such was the traffic from all these bicyclists, I listened to it read twice on the way in the car today. I want us to take the song as I think we encounter it when we read it or sing it. And that is, when you read it for the first time or two, you think it's kind of a song in celebration of sex. I think it is that. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Next few times you're reading, you think, hang on, it's not quite as much of a celebration of just good. There's also some bad stuff going on here. That's what we're going to look at next week. After you've been reading it a few times, you begin to say to yourself, this is profoundly subversive. It's trying to get us to look beyond our kind of shallow visions of sex and fulfillment to something much, much more significant. And that's where we're going to go in the last week. So I, I'm wanting to kind of take us through a reading experience, as really as I've experienced it, as I've, as I've read it. As we begin, just a word for us all. There will be any number of different experiences of sex and love in this room. For some, great pain. For others, desire and longing. For others, great difficulty. Every one of us is a sexual sinner here. No one has it all sorted. My hope and prayer is that you find the next three weeks profoundly helpful, that it frees us up and liberates us to speak about this really important area and indeed to seek help. And another final word at the beginning. Please forgive me if... I say things insensitively. It really isn't my intention. It's such a deep area of life. There are bound to be areas where we find, wow, that has really touched me. And it's not my intention to do, so that, do that in an insensitive way. Um, and uh, do let me know if you think I have, and then I'll be able to apologize to you. So the titles for the three talks, Good Sex, Bad sex, God and sex, good sex. Today, sex is good, point two, sex must be guarded, point three, sex is about the gospel. Did you ever realize that? Sex is about Jesus.
First, sex is good. We can't get away from the fact that this is a poem in celebration of love and within the context of love of erotic sex. I don't intend to go into detail of the sexual acts described. I don't think that would be particularly helpful. I do encourage you to read it for yourself. Chapter 1, verse 2. She adores him. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. She opens up to him. Draw me after you. Let us run. Others rejoice at their consensual love. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will exult your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. She seeks him out. Now, that is striking. She takes the initiative just as much, if not more than him, in this poem that celebrates love. He praises her. I love verse 9. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Why don't you try that as a chat-up line? It's, you know, kind of after eights over there in St. Andrews. Give it a go. See how you go. But when you stop and think about it, a mare amongst the stallions, just one mare, 30 or 40 stallions, everybody looks at you. It's quite uh, complimentary. <laughs> he woos her. She praises him. He wins her. She desires him. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples. It's almost as if she's kind of, she needs, she's so sort of caught up in it. I am sick with love. And then he caresses her. Verse 6. His left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. Good sex, a couple of observations. This is a public and open celebration of love and of sex. There is no sense of just the two of them sharing this intimate little secret that nobody knows anything about. The whole community rejoices over it. There is no shy reticence, nothing uptight. This is a positive celebration of love and of sex. You may have an understanding of the Christian faith that somehow Christians have a downer on sex... God is allowed in the living room, certainly not in the bedroom. Wrong. Down through the centuries at various stages of the church's life, those handling the Song of Songs, especially in the early medieval period, were so uptight about sex that they felt they had to read this only in an allegorical way, purely symbolic, and read all ideas of sex out of the poem. Oregon, who is reported to have castrated himself because of his concerns over feared sexual misconduct, was amongst the foremost of those. One writer is so prudish about a literal reading of this text that they resorted to suggesting that the twin breasts of the woman were symbolic of the Old Testament and the New Testament. <laughs> now, that is pretty impressive. Have a look at verse 4, 16 through to 5, 1 and see if you can read sex out of this. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. I came to my garden. My sister, my bride, I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. 
I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink. Be drunk with love. Now, it may be that we ourselves have had a bad experience of sex or unrealized desires around sex. And because, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, the drift away from God in any culture results inevitably in so much bad sex, it's almost inevitable that in London in the 21st century, most of us, in one way or another, have been hurt by damaging sexual encounters. And because in a congregation of this size and with this age profile, there will be some who do not have a life partner, many, and who long for the intimacy and experience of sex, there can be a tendency for us as a group to begin to see sex and sexual love in a profoundly unchristian way. Danger of never talking about it, of being really rather kind of teenage and unbiblically prudish. But this poem is a celebration by the community of God's good gift of sex, which he made. There's no hint of kind of smutty smirks or embarrassed titters, but rather raw celebration. I mentioned on four occasions there is this erotic description of one or the other's body. He twice works down her body, once up, she once down. Just listen to chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins. Not one of them among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your Two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep. They each come up from the washing. Not one of them has lost their twins. They're kind of... You know, you know what kind you make of that. You know, you've still got a full set of teeth, dear. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> I woke up at three o'clock the other morning. I noticed that uh, my wife, Janet, was awake also, and so I tried. Your hair is like a flock of goats. <laughs> I was expecting, because later on in the poem, she describes his body, I was expecting your arms are rods of gold set with jewels. Your body is polished ivory beteched with sapphires, but... I'm afraid I just got a little bit of a grunt. <laughs> so let's not be unbiblical about sex. It's a good gift. It's a gift from God. Let's not be teenage about it. Let's recognize it for what it is. The second thing that is unmistakably true, you can't get away from it, is that God's gift of sex is to be guarded if it is to be truly enjoyed. This poem is 
a celebration of exclusive, devoted sexual love, it is against polygamy and promiscuity. You know, you sometimes come across a person who suggests that the Old Testament doesn't condemn polygamy. Uh, hang on a second. You read the Song of Songs? Read again. She guards her sexual purity and she keeps her sexual intimacy for just one man. And the man for whom she keeps her sexual purity is the man she is exclusively committed to and the man she keeps herself for is the man who is exclusively committed to her. Would you turn please to chapter eight and verse eight, right at the end. Do you see early on in the poem, chapter one, verse four, she declares, the king has brought me into his chambers. And a lot of people, because they kind of forget chapter eight, assume then that somehow she's had sex with the king already before her lover finds her. But look at what she says in verse 10. Well, the others give some advice. We have a little sister, she has no breasts. What should we do for our sister on the day that she's spoken for? If she's a war, we'll build on her a battlement of silver. In other words, we'll keep her sexually pure and we'll do everything we can to make sure that that happens. She replies, I was a wall. My breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. In other words, I did keep myself pure. Now she would know. Indeed, if you flick back a couple of pages to chapter four and verse 12, this is the marriage part of the poem. My bride, my bride, my bride, my bride, he says about six times. Verse 12, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Now, it seems to me that the husband on the night of his marriage and the wife who knows where she's been all her life will know whether or not she kept herself. She did. So we cannot maintain that she slept with the king when her lover insists that he found her pure unless you think she's lying. Thus, with that straightened out, we find the whole piece resonates with a celebration of guarded love and sex. Three times she urges the daughters of Jerusalem to guard their love. You heard it twice in our reading, didn't you? I adjure you, I Beseech you, daughters of Jerusalem, do not awaken love until it so desires. Furthermore, the love that is celebrated in the poem is entirely consensual and more often than not, she takes the initiative, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, tell me you whom my soul loves where you pasture your flock, on my bed at night I sought him whom my soul loves. She takes the initiative just as much as him. The only non-consensual sex is pictured as bad sex, Solomon's sex and the watchman. What is celebrated is exclusive. I mean, just have a look at a couple of examples. Chapter five, verse one. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb. Just flick over the page to chapter six, verse three. 
I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Chapter 6, 7, verse 10. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. And then chapter 8 and verse 12. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, keep your thousand wives. I've got my vineyard, my husband. Ah, typically you say, so actually you're not in favor of sex after all. (laughs) No. No, sex is good. It's God's good gift. But if sex is to be good, it must be guarded. We are in favor of God's good gift of sex as God has given it. In fact, the Bible sees sex as so precious, so valuable, that it is to be guarded. You read this poem. Sex is intimate. Sex is profoundly exposing. Sex is vulnerable. Sex is bonding. You simply cannot take this good gift and give it to one and then another and then another and then another or use it with one and then another and then another and then another without profoundly cheapening in it and causing great damage. No, it's the Christian who values sex. I read the Bible with a guy in the city who had led a you know, really very, very profoundly sexually promiscuous existence for a number of years. Made Shane Warne look positively saintly. And um, I said to him some time in, you know, what was it like having a partner and another partner and sometimes two partners and then another partner and another partner? And he said... Empty. Well, come back next week and we'll look at bad sex. But this is where Hollywood is so illogical and our culture fails so profoundly because it wants to hold out to us the intimacy and precious pleasure of sex as the highest of experiences. And at the same time, it wants to suggest that Hugh Grant or 007 is the ideal. It's such a contradiction. Either sex is precious or it isn't. If it's precious, then... How do we use it? And God says, so intimate, guard it. What is interesting to me is that the brothers seek to guard it, and I think in chapter 8 there, we have a little sister, she has no breasts, what shall we do for our sister on the day when she's spoken for, i.e. in the day when she's betrothed, which is probably age 3 or 4 or something like that. Um, well, if she's a wall, we'll build on her a battlement of silver. If she's a door, we'll enclose her with boards of cedar. And now the girl says, I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. I was in his eyes as one. She takes, if you like, control of her sexual person and she won't have anybody else controlling it. So it's very liberating. So good sex, guarded sex. I want us to take these two points and ask you how um, we might, as a gathering and a church family, and there'll be lots of people listening online today, I guess, how we might think about this together. 
First, that we recognize that intimate love and sexual intimacy between two people of the opposite sex in exclusive, publicly recognized, permanent relationship of marriage is good. That we're not uptight. We're not fearful about talking about it. We celebrate it. All of us celebrate it as a good gift. Even if we don't experience it, we rejoice over it. We're thankful to God for it. It's a wonderful thing. Imagine a culture where there is no marriage and exclusive sex of this sort. I mean, it's, it's the farmyard. Look around you. So we celebrated it as a good gift with no sense of envy or bitterness. At the same time, we guard sex. We hold sex as only for those who are in committed, exclusive, permanent, and publicly recognized relationship. And I want to suggest if we hold these two things clearly in our own minds, each one of us individually and us together, it is profoundly and can be profoundly liberating. That each of us sees this as a good gift and a wonderful thing, but a thing to be guarded because it's so very precious. For those who are married amongst us, this is a good gift of God, and in our relationships, we should be cultivating this attitude and keeping it exclusive. We should also be cultivating the kind of tenderness and admiration. I mean, he admires her. He finds her almost sort of on occasion so admirable that you almost sense he's partly slightly in awe of her. That the sex in this relationship is entirely consensual. That there's a deep appreciation for the other. Well, there are a lot of things for married people to learn here. For those who are thinking of marriage, and there are quite a number of you who marriage, for whom marriage is really on the radar, do not awaken love until it so desires. For those not married and not thinking of marriage, let's not develop a kind of prudish downer. There is a community of delight in the romantic love. And for those in between, and by in between, I mean those kind of wishing that they were in this sort of married relationship. Well, do not awaken love until it so desires, suggests a level of patience and of self-control. And I, I know I can't know how it feels for you, but uh, I do have a sense of it. It certainly has to mean that we make a commitment not to pursue bad sex, any of the kind of sexual promiscuity that we see in Solomon. And certainly it seems to me when it comes to dating and exploring the possibility of exclusive relationship, we don't allow the intimacy to get ahead of the exclusivity. Let me unpack that for a moment. It seems to me that if I hold points one and two rightly, I will not allow myself to be intimate or even to suggest intimacy if I'm not yet ready for exclusivity. And if we can get clear on that, 
it seems again to me that this is profoundly liberating. If we say, well, I'm not in any sense going to cultivate this kind of intimacy, even head down the intimacy line until I'm ready for the exclusivity of one man, one woman in tight, bound, permanent, publicly recognized relationship, which this describes, then I, I won't even encourage intimacy until I'm ready for exclusivity. And my suggestion is that might be very liberating for us. Because it means, actually, I can go out and have a drink with anybody and it doesn't mean anything. I can go out for a coffee or go out for a drink or we can enjoy going out clubbing or... If, if I'm not suggesting intimacy before exclusivity, it just is profoundly liberating. Ask anybody out. Have a great time. Don't get intimate in any way until you're ready to be exclusive. What a relief. Somebody came up to me at the end of the four o'clock. They had a slight American accent. You'll forgive me, the Americans. I'm sorry for this. What? You mean if you're going to go out for a coffee with somebody, you won't die? <laughs> it just takes the heat out of everything, doesn't it? May I encourage that? Finally, sex and the gospel. Good sex and guarded sex points us towards the gospel and sex. As we close, I want to touch on an area that we will cover in much more detail in the final series of the, uh, week of the series. Turn to chapter 8 and verse 10, if you would. Please read this several times before next week. It's easily done. Get someone to read it to you, if you like, uh, online, I would suggest. Verse 10. She insists on her sexual purity. I was a wall, my breasts were like towers, and then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. We've already covered that. Verse 11. She contrasts her sexual purity with Solomon's sexual license. Solomon had a vineyard at Balhaman. He let out the vineyard to keep as each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. Now, King Solomon was the great king, Solomon the greatest of all Israel's kings after David, he had 700 wives and 300 sex slaves. She identifies Solomon's sexual license with Baal, a foreign god, sexually promiscuous. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Ammon. Bizarre, God isn't mentioned in the poem, Baal is, and connected with Solomon, the scumbag. She holds up her sexual faithfulness, intimacy, and the exclusivity of her relationship with one other man in verse 12. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. And she despises the sexual license of Shane Warne. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. Now, this is where the poem becomes profoundly, brilliantly subtle and subversive. She's drawn us into a, a, a glorious celebration of marriage, exclusive, one man, one woman, intimate, erotic. Now she asks us to stand back and consider King Solomon and his thousand wives, and sex slaves. 
Uh, sex in the Bible is always about more than simply erotic love and physical pleasure. Genesis chapter 2, right at the beginning, tells us that, that marriage and sex, one man, one woman, is a picture of the relationship God wants with you, intimate and exclusive. If anybody in all of Israel's history should have modeled and mirrored to the watching world the beauty of an exclusive relationship between one man and one woman so that everybody could look on and say, now that's what God wants with me, a personal, intimate relationship, it should have been King Solomon. What did Solomon do? Abusive power. A thousand wives and sex slaves. Ugh. Hideous. And so the woman is saying, look, little me, out in my rural, wherever it is, spending too long in the sun because I was working in the fields, what I've got, oh, it's so much better than what the world, what Solomon thinks he's got with his 700 wives and 300 concubines. And so, if you like, at the end of this, at the end of the Old Testament, we're left saying, ah, oh, so there is this ideal still. Where is this great one who will be totally committed to his people? And to me, it's always a, 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 a matter of extraordinary brilliance that the first miracle Jesus does is at a wedding feast. Here I am. And so we finish the poem being in a position of longing for the king, the true king, the real king, who will be exclusively committed to his people, who will model and mirror for us the relationship for which all of us were created. And we'll come to this in the last week, but you see, if our experience of sex and of relationships has been really very hurtful, and we find ourselves saying, you know, all this talk of um, exclusivity and purity, oh, do you know, I feel that I've made such a hash of it all, which will be every one of us here. We're pointed to the Lord Jesus, who looks for an intimate, loving relationship with every single one of us. It's what you were made for. Let's pray together. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice for our sin. We praise you, our Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ and his utter devotion to us, that he loves us more than we can imagine. And we thank you that what we see in your good gift of marriage finds its fulfillment in Jesus' love for his church. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us and bring us to proper repentance where we have had the wrong view of sex and marriage. We pray that amongst us you would help us to handle these matters with great godliness and care and love for one another. And above all, we pray that our approach to your good gift of sex and marriage would 
be a glorious tribute and pointer to the love of the Lord Jesus for the church. In his name, amen.